begin this afternoon in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Let's notice the first six verses. This one? I don't have the... Psalm 27, the first six verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For in the time of trouble He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret of His tabernacle shall He hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in His tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Now this morning we looked at the idea of reasons for having no hope in this life. This afternoon I want us to look in the other direction and look at the Reason for hope. Now that is the title of the sermon this afternoon. The reason for hope. The Christian has a multitude of reasons for having hope in this life. And as we read the words of David's psalm, we see the imagery of battle. We see David going into battle and talking about battle. After all, David was a man of war. And that was the reason that God gave David for not allowing him to build the temple. He said, you're a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood. I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. I'm going to allow your son to do that. And so instead of being angry with God and and trying to stop being involved in the work, David laid the plans for the temple. He he, uh, uh, gathered the materials for the temple and he gave Solomon a good start. He put him in position to build that temple. But... As we read this psalm, we read words like enemies, foes, army, war, trouble. So it's clear, as David wrote this psalm, he was in a difficult situation. David was surrounded by some problems. He was having some issues in this life, some issues that I'm sure that he would have rather not had. But it is just as clear that while all of these problems and all of these troubles was going on in his life, David had hope. He still had hope. He had a reason to have hope. Now again, this morning we talked about a reason for not having hope. We talked about those Ephesians who in a prior time in their life, they didn't have a home, they didn't have hope, but eventually they had a new hope. Now David was a whole other type of a person. David was a part of the nation of Israel. David had hope. And even when he had problems in this life, he knew where to look to help sustain his hope. The English poet G.K. Chesterton said this, There is no medicine like hope. Hope's a great thing, isn't it? He said, No incentive so great 
And no tonic so powerful as expectation of something better tomorrow. Hey, that'll make us get out of bed, won't it? That'll make us look forward to being able to do something, to carry on, to dig deeper, to go through that forest we talked about, to look for that light at the end of the tunnel, to search for that key that opens the lock, to knock on the door that can be opened. It's that hope, that expectation of something better, right? The dictionary tells us hope is to have a wish to get or for something to happen or to be true, especially something that seems possible or likely. Now, from the world's point of view, that's what hope is, right? That's what faith is. Something might happen or something that might not happen, but we're going to hope for it. We're going to wish it'll happen. But that's not really what hope for the Christian is. See, hope for the Christian is something completely different. The Bible teaches a very different definition of what hope is. Notice what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah 17, verse 7. He said, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. See, that word trust, that means a lot to the Christian. That means a lot to the follower of God, right? And whose hope is in the Lord. Again, we're not hoping and placing our hope in something that can be destroyed, something that can go away very quickly. No, we're placing our hope in the Lord. The world tells us hope is is just a happy wish or a happy desire, something that kind of takes our minds off of the trouble for just a moment. No, that's not what scriptural hope is. See, that hope that that we place our trust in God, that kind of hope, it's what gets us out of bed in the morning. See, the, the words used for hope in the Bible tell us a very different story than what the world tells us. They teach us hope is a deep, settled confidence. Settled meaning it was settled in the long ago, right? Settled meaning it's settled in our very being that we understand what it is and that we can build upon that, right? And settled in the idea that God will keep His promises. That's the very foundation, isn't it? God will do what He said He will do. God promised almost from the very beginning that we read about in the Bible, He was going to send something that would take care of the sins of the world. And we read about that in Genesis 3.15. We don't really get to answer there. But as time unfolded and as the writings unfolded, we get a better and a more clear understanding of what's about to happen on down through the prophets. And even the prophets didn't fully understand. But then we get into the New Testament and then the the unfolding. And then Paul began to talk about that mystery that was no longer a mystery. And then we understand what those promises are. And all along, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was given a promise. Didn't really understand fully what that promise was. But when we come into the Christian age, now we understand and God always keeps His promises. You know, everyone faces trials and problems and tribulations and things in this life that can upset us. But there's something that keeps us going. Everyone has those things, but not everyone has hope. But see, we need to be able to rest in sure confidence in God. But only the Christian can do that. Only the faithful Christian. God will do just exactly what He promised He'll do. 
And we need to be able to latch on to that. It may be one lives in turmoil because he knows God will do what he says he will do. And it's designed to be that way, isn't it? We ought to toss and turn at night if we're worried that God will carry through with his promises if we're not doing what we know we ought to be doing. But if Christians are going to overcome in this life, we have to have hope. We have to understand from where that hope comes. And that's what we want to talk about for just a few moments this afternoon. The reason for hope and where that comes from. We have hope in this life, first of all, and this is going to be our first point, because of our confidence in the Lord. And we can go back to this Psalm 27, and we can see that, and we can make that application to our lives. We have confidence in the person of the Lord. We have confidence in the person of the Lord. Now, David began his psalm by declaring his faith in the personal attributes of God. The personal attributes of God. Notice three times he used the word my in verse 1. David said, the Lord is my light, my salvation, and my strength. We have to commend David for that. Everyone ought to be able to say, God is my light, my salvation, and my strength. And David said that as light, God delivers his people from darkness. That's what Paul said. Paul said, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, uh, of the son of his love, Colossians 1.13. And it was also David who had said the word of God was the light by which we are to guide our steps, Psalm 119.105. So God is our light as our salvation God delivers His people from spiritual death. Now that's exactly what David was talking about, right? Of course, David was talking about it in a whole lot of different ways. He was talking about it as spiritual death. Of course, at that time, he was living in a different era. He was talking about physical death. But notice what Jesus said in John 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. See, he has the words of eternal life. He has life that he can offer to those who want to accept it. See, a lot of folks didn't understand that. And we've mentioned this and over the last few weeks. He talked to the Samaritan at the well, and he had this water of life. You'd never thirst again. She said, well, let me have it. So that way I don't have to come back to the well anymore. Well, she was misunderstanding, right? She didn't understand that. If you're going to live in this physical world, you're going to have to go to the well and drink physical water. But see, he had a water that he could give her the waters of living, the waters of life, and she wouldn't have to drink anymore. See, the wonderful news is, as salvation, God secures our souls. He'll secure us. And we have to understand that in a scriptural sense, right? And Peter said the faithful are kept, 1 Peter 1, 5, by the power of God, how? Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God will secure us, but it's through faith, right? We have to understand that the gospel system of faith will secure us, but now our faith has to come through, and we have to be faithful. We have to do our part, right? That's what Peter is talking about. God will secure us. He's going to do His part, but now we have to do 
our part. Finally, he talks about his strength. God delivers his people from defeat. David was assured of that confidence, right? Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, victory was had. Satan was defeated. Satan didn't understand. Satan thought he was winning because he physically had something to do with having Christ murdered. Right? He thought victory. Judas, he, he entered Judas's heart through temptation and all of those things. And he encouraged Judas to do what he did. And so he said, alright, we win. We have defeated Jesus. Oh no. Oh no. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Now... You see how it all comes back around, back to Genesis 3.15? All the way back to Genesis 3.15. You will bruise his heel. That's a minor injury, right? But he'll bruise your head. That's a death blow. And so when Jesus died on the cross, that was a minor injury because he would walk out of the tomb. But when he walked out of the tomb, that was a crushing blow to Satan that was the death blow because now we are all victorious over death. There's going to be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ was resurrected, we'll all be resurrected. That's the crushing blow to Satan. So now that's why He is our strength to deliver us. Our strength, God guarantees our success if we remain faithful to Him. See, that's why He says in Romans eight thirty-seven. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us. See, if, if that was uh, translated, we could translate that to say, because this is what the word means, super conquerors. Super conquerors. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? That brings hope in us. Because of the attributes of God, we have confidence in the person, but we also have confidence in the performance of God. In, in the psalm, David declared his present hope in the Lord and it rested on that which he had done for him in the past. I'm, I'm confident in him now because what he has done in the past. Well, how do we know that he will continue to do those things that he's done in the past? God doesn't change. God doesn't change. If we're faithful in the past and he's blessed us, if we're faithful in the present, he'll continue to bless us, right? God had never failed David. God had never failed David. When David was faithful, God blessed him. If David continued to be faithful, God would never fail him. Notice when David fought and killed Goliath, the Philistine giant, he knew God would be with him. He knew God would be with him. Do you think David might have been a little concerned? Do you think he might have been a little anxious? A little fearful? Why, sure, he would have been a little nervous going out there, wouldn't he? But you know what he said? I'm going to go. And he stood up to that giant, right? He said, I'm coming for you and I will be victorious. Now he had to go through all the motions. He had to go through and do that. He had to stand up. But he did it because he knew God was with him. We serve that same God. See, we need to understand that. And when I, when I read these accounts of David and uh, doing all the things that he did... I need to try to remember and place myself say, that's the same God I serve today. That's the same God. I serve that God. David was faithful to that God 
And that God took care of David. Now, He's going to do it differently for us because the age of miracles are over. God's not going to talk to us directly. He's given us His written Word. But it's the same God. He wanted to take care of David, and He wants to take care of us. God is an unchangeable God, and He will continue to offer the gift of grace. David had the the grace of God. That's why he treated him the way he did. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. That's why he treated him the way he did. And we serve that same God. Notice what God told Malachi, Malachi 3, 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. We're serving that same God. The writer of Hebrews reminded Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know He will never fail us because God does not change. Now prior to that, the the writer said... Jesus Himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, verse 5. We can count on it because of His performance. He's done it in the past. He will continue to do it in the present. Our hope comes from our confidence, and it also comes from our commitment. That's our second point. It comes from our commitment. David was committing to loving God. See, we have to understand that. We have to commit to loving God. We can't put God in the back seat. God has to be in the front seat. And He has to be driving the car. Right? He has to be driving the car. We have to follow God. David wanted to spend his life in the house of God. If we turn over to Psalm 84 and we read verses 1 through 4, we can read in that psalm how God, how David was dedicated to wanting to be in the house of God. In fact, he was so dedicated to it that he talks about how he envied the birds who built their nests in the eaves of the temple because they were so close to the temple of God, to the place where God's presence was. Because David couldn't be there all the time. But those birds could be. And he wanted to be like those birds because they were there all the time. That's how much he loved God. He had a desire to be where God was. But see, we can be where God is. We're always in the presence of God, right? David said he wanted to behold the beauty of the Lord. He wanted to seek after His face. There was nothing he wanted more. We have to put ourselves in that position. We have to have that desire. Not only was David committed to loving God, he was committed to worshiping God. We talked about worship last week. And that's a worthy and a necessary goal in life, isn't it? Worshiping God properly. That should be the goal of every believer, every Christian. We have to do it the way God wants us to do it, right? We, we spent time on that. We, were, we talked about how Jesus told us how to worship God. God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's with the the right mindset according to the proper way, right? That's spirit or, or attitude and doctrine, John 4, 24. So as we yield ourselves to God and worship Him for who He is revealed in the Scripture, we are engaged in loving Him and showing our respect toward Him and doing it the way He's asked us to do. And that's what we need to do. That demonstrates our commitment to loving Him. And that helps us to embolden our hope. That puts us close to God, right? 
That puts us close to Him. And that helps strengthen our hope. And when we face problems, that helps. That helps us to see the light at the end of the tunnel. David expressed his desire to call on the Lord, to loving God, and it also helps us understand we have to lean upon Him. God expects that. God expects that. When we pray to God as a part of our worship, God wants us to come to Him asking for the things in this life. That means we are recognizing that we are to lean upon God. God wants us to understand that. That we recognize He is our source, right? We already talked about uh, in verse 1 where David said, He's my strength. He's my salvation. Well, we have to recognize He's our source of power, right? He is where we get our abilities from. He's, he is, uh, we are in utter dependence upon God. God expects us to recognize that. And so that's what He's talking about when we are leaning upon Him. We have to be able to look beyond our own abilities. And that was the problem, and we mentioned this morning about the, the rich fool looking out and saying, you know, uh, I'm going to have to tear down my barns. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar a couple of weeks ago and going out and saying, look at this great Babylon that I have created. That's a problem. That was a problem, and that cost Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar had to learn a big lesson before he could get his mind right. We have to see that God has provided us with all the provisions. James said that all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. Right? That means He doesn't change. And again, that connects to exactly what the writer of Hebrews said. That's what Malachi, or what God told Malachi. I'm the Lord, I do not change. All good gifts come from God. And because of that, we should want nothing more than to call upon His name and to recognize that and to thank Him for that, Right? We have to commit to leaning on God. We have to commit to loving God. That's all part of of our hope. That's connected to our hope, right? Prior to teaching the disciples how to pray, Jesus told them that God knew their every need. Matthew 6, verse 8. So again, why, why ask? Why the need to ask if He already knows? Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. God wants us to demonstrate our dependence upon Him. And we do that in different ways. First of all, we do it by asking. And we do it by thanking Him. We recognize from where it comes, right? In other words, God expects us to commit to leaning on Him, and that will provide hope for us. If we recognize that, that will help provide hope for us. He is the source, right? We have a connection to Him. We are close to Him. And we want to maintain that connection. When that connection is broken, that's when the no hope comes in, right? That's what was wrong with the the Ephesians in a time past They did not have that connection. That's why there was no hope. See, we have that connection. We have that commitment, right? That's what we want. That's what we want. Hope is provided to the Christian through confidence in God, through our commitment to God, and also through...
through the comfort we receive from Him. That's our, our third and our last point. God has provided shelter uh, for us. David spoke of his being hidden in God's pavilion. That, that pavilion, that's, a, that's an interesting way to describe that. Of course, what David's talking about is the king's pavilion. The king's pavilion was a tent that was erected in the middle of an army's encampment. They would go out to war, the king would go with them, and right in the middle of that army, they would erect this grand tent where the king would stay. That was the safest place anyone could be. It was right in the middle of uh, uh, where all of the bravest soldiers were who were there dedicated to protecting the king. Now, you had all these soldiers going out to fight against the enemy. And boy, they had a great army. But do you know where the fiercest, bravest soldiers were? Back at that pavilion. They had to keep an eye on David. They had to make sure nothing happened to the king. Because if the king was killed... It was over, right? The army would just fall apart if the leader was gone. So that's what David is describing of the sh- how he describes the shelter that God provides for us. He puts us in the king's pavilion. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great description of how God shelters us by placing us, surrounding us in the safest place on the battlefield? Now that tells us something else, doesn't it? We are in a battle. We are in a battle. But He has provided a safe shelter for us if we will accept it. And we better accept it. Because the battle is a dangerous place. But we need protection, right? Those fortunate enough to be invited inside the king's pavilion were also protected by those soldiers. When they went to visit the king, They didn't have to worry about it. Now, getting to that pavilion was another story. But once they got there, they were safe, right? Now, this word hide, it means to treasure away. If we allow God to do this, He will treat us as a treasure, hidden away, protected, right? And He'll provide for our every need. The assurance of His sheltering place allows us to weather the storms of life with hope. That's, that's the imagery that David is going for here. And that, that is what allowed David to, uh, to face Goliath. That's what, excuse me, that's what allowed uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to not bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's idol. That's what allowed Noah to stand up against everyone else in the world prior to the flood. That's what allowed Jeremiah to stand up against everyone in Israel. No one, as far as we can tell, ever listened to one word he had to say. No one ever, uh, he, he didn't get a single convert that we can tell. And he died for his efforts, but he was a successful prophet for God. That's what allowed him to do what he did. And that's what will allow us to do what we do. That's the same hope that allowed Paul to continue even when he was being mistreated under the penalty of death, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. David had hope because of the comfort of the sheltered place God had provided for him. But it was a sheltered place because it was a place where 
David could find the comfort of security. The comfort of security. David had the hope of God hiding him in his tabernacle. He said, setting up on the high rock of safety. The high rock of safety. Of course, the rock is the Lord, right? He's unchangeable. He's powerful. He's immovable. David spoke of the rock of safety in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 2. And Paul reminded the Corinthians about the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness and provided for them. And that rock, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, was the Christ. He followed them and he watched over them. He kept them safe, right? And if faithful, the Christian receives those same promises. That promise of refuge, a place of shelter, and a place of security. That same place where Lazarus is today. That same place in the bosom of Abraham where all the faithful have gone on and who await those who will be coming. And because of the things of verse 5 in our passage, because they're passive as far as David is concerned, meaning they are the things uh, uh, God does to David, not the things that uh, David does uh, for himself, many have taught there's nothing required on the part of the believer. Now that's not true. That's absolutely not true. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? So we have to understand that. That's also in there. What does it mean? It means to patiently serve Him. And serving Him means being obedient to His commands. What would have happened if David had simply just done everything David wanted to do? Would he have, would, would he have uh, had a, a commitment to God? Could we say he was committed to God? Not at all. If David had done all the things that David wanted to do, instead of the things God wanted to do, would God have comforted David? Could he have been uh, uh, sheltered by God? Would he have had that security? No. But David waited on the Lord. That means he served him patiently and he obeyed him. Now, did David make some mistakes? Absolutely. He absolutely made mistakes in his life and I don't think there's a better example of a child of God coming to understand the mistakes that he made and then repenting of those mistakes, confessing what he had done and asking God to forgive him. And probably the greatest example we have is his sin with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan came to him and and told him the... Uh, the the parable that we're all familiar with, the man who had the the ewe lamb and and uh, someone stole the ewe lamb and and killed it and served it as dinner and and David was so upset he said that man's worthy of death and you know you notice that Nathan didn't say now nah, that's a little harsh David I don't know that that man's worthy of death I think he uh, he just let David talk. And then he said, Thou art the man. And immediately David repented of his sin. He confessed his sin. And he said, I have sinned against God. He had sinned against everyone involved, including himself. And he repented of that sin. And David or Nathan prayed for him. God forgave him. And that is a prime example of how a child of God returns back to walking in the light. If you're here today and you need to answer the Lord's invitation... We have hope, but sometimes we step outside the light and we need to return. And David is the example of how to have hope, how to lose hope, but how to gain it back. If you need to answer, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.